Good afternoon, Sangha. So, today I am the sage on the stage, (laughs) which is, uh, it's really wonderful to talk about Dhamma, because it's one of the most profound subjects you could ever talk about. And uh, I'll start off by saying I probably will make a few errors, and I apologize before I even do them. (laughs) But I'm sure that there might be some things that might be useful. When I give Dharma talks, I'm always talking to myself. You know, it's a way to uh, water the seeds of the wisdom principles of the practice. And today I'm going to be talking about how mindfulness, sati, vipassana, or insight meditation, how it can transform suffering, dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness. And I, it's good for me to remind myself of that pretty often. You know, what is one of the foundational reasons why we practice? Because it can absolutely help us transform suffering. And it's interesting, so I sat a retreat, it's probably two months ago now, with the Venerable Analayo up at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is right up the block. And um, the group had a nice discussion about the meaning of dukkha. Uh, Many of you probably know, or most of you probably know, that dukkha is part of the first noble truth of the Buddhist teachings, and it's translated as suffering. And Anaya was saying, you know, he's one of our best translators. He um, looks at multiple texts, you know, the Chinese Agamas and the Pali uh, suttas, and tries to find overlaps to get the correct interpretation or translation of things. And he says that right now his favorite translation for dukkha or suffering is unsatisfactoriness. And I really like that one too. Uh, but we all know that you know there's a spectrum of how strong that can get in any one of us. Or how dukkha, how strong dukkha can get to just mildly unsatisfying to just full-blown physical and emotional suffering. There's a spectrum there. And I think it's um, one of the important parts of our practice is being able to see that spectrum, to be able to see that. So the first teaching after his awakening, the Buddha offered a conceptual framework, a framework of understanding. You know, he didn't want to offer it, but I think it was the devas, the came out and said, hey, you got to go teach this stuff. And he said, nobody's going to understand this. And he said, yes, yeah, some people will. So he decided to teach. And uh, the first teaching he gave was the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And I'm sure we all know that. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that he said, actually, in the Samyutta Nikaya, is that until we know dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, we don't really have a way to end it. 
So knowing it and opening to it and seeing it as an important part of our wisdom practice of seeing dukkha clearly is uh, really an important first step for us all. It's interesting how this stuff works. So the first sermon, again, clarifies what dukkha is and how it fits in with the rest of the Four Noble Truths. I love the Four Noble Truths all have verbs associated with them. So uh, the first one is, such as dukkha, it can be fully known. It has been fully known. So that's part of the practice that we're doing. The second noble truth, such as craving, it can be let go. It has been let go. The third is cessation or awakening. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. And then the fourth is the path. Such as the path, it can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. So all forms of dukkha, going back to the first noble truth, share a sense of unsatisfactoriness or incompleteness. Maybe if we put it into some vocabulary or concepts that make sense for us individually, it can be a sense that in some way we are missing out on our own life's full potential. Oh, I could probably be happier. I could probably be more successful. I could probably have more resources or money. Couldn't I be more attractive? (laughs) You know, all of these ways, uh, either unconsciously or consciously, that this sense of unsatisfaction arises in us. And for many of us, or most of us, I'm sure, we often see these as private failures. Like these are very, very personal. I mean, think of the last thing that you were particularly upset about or that your mind keeps um, bringing up stories about. For me, I had a pretty big change of my situation at uh, work, at the university that I work with at. And um, I just, you know, it wasn't bad or good or anybody's fault or anything like that, but I kept having stories about the way it used to be and how I wanted it like that. And um, it's so interesting just to see, you know, the stories that arise with any unpleasant sensation or the changing of things. Of, you know, well, I was this, I used to be this, and now I'm that, and I'm not this anymore, but I should be that. Or, you know, relationships with coworkers. Um... You know, we all take that so personally. It's so interesting. And um, oftentimes, or most of the time, we take all of these changes and this dukkha, part of the sense that it is dukkha or unsatisfactory or unpleasant is that we do take it very personally as our own private failure or problem. 
And as we identify this way, we make this part of our identity. This is who I am. So the Buddha talked about three, he distinguished three domains or bases of dukkha, three different types of dukkha. The first is dukkha dukkha, which is the suffering of suffering. And that's, you know, things associated with giving birth, growing old, physical illness, and the process of dying. He talked about, you know, all of these things as, and, you know, a lot of times we take all of these things very personally, like we're the only ones that are growing old, or the only ones that have given birth, or been in relationships, or any of these things. And... um, So that's the suffering of suffering. You know, just the process of being born and aging and dying. Dukkha, dukkha. And then the second type of suffering he delineates is Vipanarama dukkha, or the the suffering of change, or the suffering of impermanence. And this is the suffering of holding on to things that are constantly changing. You know, for me, it was that situation at work where, you know, I ended a really big research project and everybody had to go get other jobs, you know, on soft money. And it was like, hey, where is everybody? (laughs) And I took that so personally and it really didn't have anything to do with me. But that's what I'm telling myself right now. how I'm trying to deal with it and realizing that, of course, that situation changed. Any situation, any uh, conditioned, uh, conditioned experience that has the nature to arise or be new absolutely has a nature to fall apart and go away. You know, that's its nature. We didn't make that happen. That's just the nature of conditioned existence, that it is impermanent. And it will arise and be there. And, you know, after some time, it will go away and not be there. And it's not personal. We have nothing to do with it. So, Vipanarama Dukkha. The suffering of trying to hold on to things that are always changing includes the suffering of losing what we want and the suffering of having what we don't want. That's the second type of dukkha. And then the third type of dukkha is sankara dukkha. Actually, maybe I jumped the gun. That's the suffering of conditioned states, also known as all-pervasive dukkha, all-pervasive unsatisfactoriness. And this is the suffering of ego clinging, uh, just struggling with things as they unfold. Oh, I don't want that to unfold. Why is it unfolding? Oh, I wish this would happen. You know, this is what I need to happen to be happy. And this is struggling both against outer conditions. Oh, I wish my kids were like this. My partner really has to learn how to do this. Or, um, you know, external stuff or internally. I am just no good and I've got to change or how can I be better? Sankara Dukkha is struggling with our own thoughts and emotions. You know, as they arise and, you know, feeling like we believe everything that we think. 
and all of the emotions that we have, you know, we take them as us. This is ours. I think it's an excellent example of becoming, which is another big, huge concept in our practice, becoming. Um, That's one thing that we can notice when we're meditating. Our mindfulness can notice how many bonnies arise in any one 40-minute sit. It's amazing how many arise. But um, that becoming, actually just briefly, it's uh, one great important teaching on that is something called dependent origination. And there's like five steps of that that are so crucial. It's contact. So me sitting up here as a Dharma teacher in contact with all of this. Vedana, which is feeling tone, and you know, feeling tone or whether something is pleasant or unpleasant pretty much rules the entire world. It is such a huge factor in all of our lives. So I think it's mildly pleasant, I think. I get to talk about the Dhamma. Uh, I could be nervous. Maybe it sometimes I am, but I teach for a living, so I don't care. I'm going to do my best, and we'll see how it turns out. Uh, So that is uh, contact, then the Vedana, so it feels good. Then Tanha, clinging. So how do I want this to be? Do I want it to go away or do I want it to stay like this? Clinging and then um, Tanha. And then uh, Upadana, which is actually Upadana is clinging. It's like not seeing through that and just clinging to it. And then that's so interesting. The next thing that comes is bawa, which is becoming. And that might be something if your mindfulness is strong, you have some concentration or collectedness of mind, some samadhi. That could be something to look at, how the becoming happens. It's a great thing. And that's part of sankara dukkha. And, um, you know, all of these types of dukkha, you could do a lifelong retreat just on one of those. You know, I know I'm covering them very, um, you know, a very brief overview, but it's just to show that, you know, as we all know, there's no God in Buddhism, right? There's no higher power. There might be devas that can help us out and things like that, but, um, you know, the Buddha was such a profound behavioral scientist, boy. He was amazing. Um, so those are the three types of dukkha. And how does mindfulness transform dukkha? How does it transform dukkha? So the Buddha once asked a student, if a person is struck by an arrow, is it painful? The student replied, it is. The Buddha then asked, if the person is struck by a second arrow, is that even more painful? The student replied again, it is. The Buddha then explained, in life, we cannot always control the first arrow. However, the second arrow is our reaction to the first. And with the second arrow comes a possibility of choice. And that is where mindfulness comes in. You know, thinking just about how um, we are acting, how much of our life is on autopilot, you know, just a reflection on that or just a reflection and as we walk around on this retreat, how much of walking around is total autopilot. 
it's amazing to me how much of my life is autopilot, how much it's uh, just, you know, letting the uh, habitual habits of body, mind, and heart play themselves out without doing some intentional uh, focusing on, you know, what I should be doing and thinking about and um, rather than just letting those autopilots uh, go on without any attention. So how does mindfulness transform dukkha? It transforms dukkha in three ways, three ways to think about it. The first one is what the mind is processing. The second one is how the mind is processing it. And thirdly, the view of what is being processed. So three ways to think about how mindfulness impacts suffering. So again, you know, when the Buddha talks about the second arrow, you know, the process of being born and living and aging and dying, uh, you know, in that regard, we are just like the rest of nature. I mean, we are nature. How could we not be nature? And, um, but what mindfulness helps us does is change our habitual uh, believing the concepts that our culture is built around and, um, you know, making choices of, about how we want to live our life and um, how we want to spend our time. Uh, of course, how we want to spend our time thinking. So how we change the what, what the content the mind is processing, how do we change that? Just these habitual, uh, unintended things that are arise. I really like this a little bit long quote. It's not too long, just that long, by Thich Nhat Hanh. I'll put this on the board. I always put too much stuff on the board. Uh, this is uh, by Thich Nhat Hanh from the Mindfulness Survival Kit. Suppose you suffered a lot as a child. You have many sad memories of the times you suffered, and all of these are still stored in your consciousness. Many of us have made a habit of going back to the past to experience again and again the suffering that we endured in the past. It's as if we're watching a film of the past over and over again reliving the suffering of the past. The past has become a kind of prison for us and we're no longer free to enjoy the wonders of life available in the present moment. There are animals that are ruminants like water buffalo and cows. After chewing and swallowing, they bring up their food again and again and again and they chew and swallow it again. There are people who continue to consume the suffering of the past in this way. They spend their time during the day ruminating over their own suffering from the past. The practice of mindfulness can help us get out of this prison and begin to learn how to live our lives in the present moment. If we're aware that we're replaying the past, we can make a concerted effort to notice something that is healthy and wonderful right in front of us in this very moment. Notice something that is healthy and 
good right in front of us in this moment. It might be a part of our body that is working well. Hey, my knees are still bending. My feet are still walking. It could be a part of our body that is working well and not aching. It might be the blue sky or the softness of the pillow under our heads or under our behinds. If we breathe and pay attention to this wonderful thing that is present with us right now, then the movie will recede and lose some of its power. As if it's no longer being fed the electricity it needs to keep going. You can even take the hand of the wounded child within you and invite them to come with you into the present moment. This can be very nourishing and healing. It can make you stronger so that later on, when you want to look into the past, you can do so with perspective while remaining firmly grounded in the present moment. This way you don't lose yourself in the sorrows of the past. Does anybody here do that? Is it only me? You guys ever do that? No? You never do that, do you? (laughs) I just thought that was so powerful and so clearly said. So that is the first way how we can, uh, uh, how mindfulness helps our suffering. And that is changing the what, what content that we are processing. And we can see, I mean, I can see in myself all the time, just the, um, you know, ruminations, the uh, unconscious, unbidden things that are arise, it's usually something that is challenging my own ego identification or who I think I am, right? It's uh, something that's changing that. And um, it's often unpleasant and uncomfortable, something that I don't like. Even though it could be wonderful for everybody around us, you know, if it's uh, making us into something we don't want to be, it's like a negative thing. How crazy is that? I'm just talking about what's going on with me right now, not none of you. (laughs) So when we change the what, we are selective in what we attend to, both internally and externally. That is so important. You know, one of the, um, you know, we took the precepts. I love the precepts. And one of the um, ways to actually hold the precepts is to just be very um, clear about what we take in, you know, what we expose ourselves to. Like right now, I'm so happy. I can't watch anything violent on television anymore. I end up, you know, the like food channel is the only thing I can watch. <laughs> it's getting kind of weird, but but that, you know, through the process of my practice, I just can't watch anything violent. It doesn't it doesn't work for me at all. But we are selective about what we attend to. And uh, we free ourselves from the, our, uh, you know, the task is to free ourselves from automatic unconscious priorities by attention and switch from, um, we switch from unconscious, automatic unconscious priorities and attention to a conscious allocation of attention. And that's one of the biggest things that mindfulness does. It really helps us with a pause and a a specific choice to choose what we are going to pay attention to. That's really important. So automatic and conscious 
priorities perpetuate anger and depression and anxiety, uh, you know, rumination about things that aren't working or ways that we have been, um, you know, hurt or um, been victims of our culture, the society, you know. And, um, you know, we can decide, okay, I see you there, that's good, but right now I'm not going to go there and go back to... And on the cushion while we're sitting here, what we can do is, if that happens, we can go back to finding an anchor in our body. And one thing, I'm so happy that our beloved Pascal, the brilliant teacher, this morning talked about, um, and yesterday in the opening... He really uh, wanted to make sure that we had a Brahma Vihara or um, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, uh, that that was part of our practice, that we noticed whether awareness was infused with any of that. I think he said, are the Brahma Viharas, are those beautiful practices the result of an awakened mind, the result of practice, or are they the cause of awakening? Are they the cause of a peaceful mind? That was excellent. <laughs> so one way that we can, uh, one thing that we can shift to when we find ourselves ruminating is just going back to compassion for ourselves. I love that. You know, oh, um, I can see my suffering right now. I'm suffering. I'm holding my suffering with kindness and gentleness. May I be free from pain and suffering. You know, just holding it and putting, you know, rather than concentrating on what the thing that's making us suffer, to come down to water the seeds of our wish to be happy and our wish, wish to be free. Uh, we can do the metaphrases. May I be safe and protected from inner and outer danger happy and peaceful, healthy and strong, however that looks for me. And, you know, may I have what I need. May I give love and receive love. Whatever phrases really resonate with you, when you find yourself really ruminating on something that's not useful, you know, and what we're doing, I guess, according to neuroscience, is we are... You know, we have these neuropathways, these grooves that determine how our thinking is. And every time we decide not to go there, we're using our mindfulness and meta to fill in those neuropathways. <laughs> Don't you like that image? It's just filling them in with some loving kindness. Let's stick some of that in there. And then that becomes, you know, a habitual place that we go when things go wrong. You know, that's what we're doing. So the first is changing the what. Uh, going from a automatic, unconscious um, priorities to a conscious allocation of attention. Really changing what we are thinking about and doing. Here's another quote by Christopher Germer. Look at it this way. The instinctive response to danger, the stress response, consists of fight, flight, or freeze. These three strategies help us to survive physically, but, they're, but when they're applied to our mental and emotional functioning, we get into trouble. When there's no enemy to defend against, we turn on ourselves. 
Fight becomes self-criticism. Flight becomes self-isolation. And freeze becomes self-absorption, getting locked into our own thoughts. So mindfulness can change the what. So the second way that mindfulness can help us um, hold suffering is to change the how. Uh, So rather than changing the what, we change the how. Okay, so here's a good uh, here's a good quote by Tulku Tupten Rinpoche. The human mind has a tendency to manufacture concepts and beliefs in relationship to things that are inherently transcendental. This often leads us to suffer the old curse of mistaking the finger pointing to the moon for the moon itself. The cause of this mistaken perception is the ego, since the ego's only occupation is to sustain its flimsy existence or world of illusion. It always tries its best to create hindrances to the realization of truth. It's so funny. I mean, I can see my ego wanting to be this and wanting to be that when my experience of anatta, not self, is uh, the most profound intimacy that is what we're looking for by being this and being that. It's like you get that profound intimacy from the opposite of being anything. It's so good to remember that for me. So how do we change the uh, how we are processing things? So um, this gets back, uh, one way to say this is that we have two uh, knowledge systems uh, as humans. We might have more, but the two that are talked about in the Buddha's um, suttas in our beloved Theravada early Buddhist tradition is that we have um, our thinking mind, you know, some might say, I don't think this is totally true, but some might say it's uh, Western culture is really excellent at this, about naming things and counting things and, uh, you know, making up reality, because it's pretty much all made up, right? I mean, um, if you believe in God, I like to tell my students about deconstruction, that, you know, if you know, God doesn't have a three by five card that says what it means to be a woman or a man or Bonnie Duran or any of us, you know, those are concepts that were created by, you know, history and current cultural practices and just so many different things. They are shaped by concepts that we all agree to and believe in. Some we voice a lot that are totally unconscious, but, um, So that's one knowledge system is that conceptual, linear uh, um, knowledge system. And then we have another knowledge system that um, is probably linked to more, um, I think, an an epistemology of the global south. Uh, As an indigenous person, I see it as absolutely the knowledge system that I go into in native ceremony, sun dancing and sweat lodge ceremonies and Native American church. It's definitely this other knowledge system which is uh, intuitive and right-brained. It's intuitive. It's uh, asking a question and not letting our conceptual mind answer the question. 
actually, um, you know, there's an ancient prophecy, an Amazon prophecy of the people of the Amazon. It is the prophecy of the eagle and the condor. Has anybody heard of the eagle and the condor? It's interesting. They say it's a few thousand years old, but the prophecy is that there are, uh, you know, and the eagle and condor kind of represent these two knowledge systems. The eagle represents counting things and naming things and, you know, believing and putting together a world where, um, you know, depending on what time, certain people want to exploit the environment and other people around them for their own good. And, you know, that's a good thing. You know, neoliberalism, maybe, that everything can be exploited for the purpose of individual pleasure and thinking that pleasure is the accumulation of things, right? And so that's the eagle. But it doesn't have to be bad. I mean, there are excellent, you know, please... We don't want to throw out Western science. We love it. There's a lot of excellent things, but it is one way of knowing things. And then the condor represents this intuitive awareness, uh, this wisdom arising. And, you know, that's really the foundation of our practice of mindfulness and mindfulness and the Eightfold Path more generally, because we don't end our suffering. We don't let go of... Uh, these um, habitual thought patterns and things like that, wisdom does. Wisdom is the only thing that frees us from our conceptual misunderstanding of reality. And wisdom is the uh, core element of the intuitive awareness system. And that's the system that we're engaging while we're practicing here. So, you know, when we are sitting in meditation, Maybe we've uh, begun our sitting with um, some uh, samadhi practice or concentration practice like a body scan or a, you know, finding where the breath is most predominant within a whole body awareness. And then when we open up to see our mindfulness pick the most predominant thing to watch the rising and passing away of that, um, when, you know, thoughts come up, and we believe our thoughts or the thoughts actually have maybe pleasant Vedana. It's kind of interesting. And for me, that looks like um, romantic fantasy. <laughs> uh, hopefully, you know, I'm so happy my age has gotten rid of a lot of that. Oh, my God. There's some excellent things of aging, let me tell you. <laughs> but before it was like romantic fantasy was like one thing that felt so good. I think... For, uh, I don't know, maybe female-identified people, it might be romantic fantasy, and maybe for more male-identified people, I've heard it's sexual fantasy, actually. But it's like it has a pleasant feeling tone, and I could just go for days on retreat, oh my gosh, have a whole fantasy about someone in the aisle, you know, two, uh, two aisles away. Oh yeah, we're going to get married, this is going to happen, and... By the end of the retreat, we were divorced and on our separate ways. <laughs> but, you know, just um, allowing ourselves to do that or, or allowing ourselves to even investigate something that we're thinking about. Well, what about this or what about that? When, you know, the meditation practice is really about cultivating the strength of this other way of knowing the intuitive awareness. So what we can say to that thinking mind is, Oh, I love you, thinking mind. You are so helpful. You know, we are going to hang out on Thursday, okay? On Thursday, we're going to hang out. But right now, I'm going back to intuitive awareness. 
you know, really just come back to that other knowledge system. Uh, and I think another thing that um, our beloved Pascal said, he said, and within the system, you ask a question and then you listen for the answer. You listen for, from the answer from chitta, from your heart, not from the conceptual mind. And that's how wisdom arises. If we keep doing that over and over again, we're strengthening that intuitive system and strengthening our turning to it. And that's what we want to do. So what is this? And it does not expect a conceptual answer. What is this? What is this happening right now? So that is another way of working with the how and how the how changes, um, how the how changes suffering. And then the third is changing the view, changing the view of the material being processed. And um, this is just investigating the narrative. So I have an example. Some um, wonderful person was tapping into what everyone is feeling and asked about re- reactivity. They gave this, the um, teachers a note about reactivity. And I love uh, talking about uh, one of my strongest meditation retreat experiences was actually in this very room, probably sitting somewhere over there. And um, I was sitting in the three-month retreat. This was probably in 2005 or something. And um, there was a student teacher, just like our two beloved student teachers, uh, all of the teachers were off. It was a Saturday night, and the student teacher was giving the Dharma talk. And they came in, and uh, I think, I don't know why, but they started talking about how what we're doing is analogous to a great exploration, kind of like Christopher Columbus. <laughs> and, you know, she, they went on and on for a while about this, and I, and I had been sitting for maybe six weeks. And what happens when we sit is, and some of you have probably noticed it already, or you will notice, is that we get much more sensitive. So some little thing, you know, someone moving next, you know, sitting next to us or doing something uh, close to us, which would have never bothered us because we're much more sensitive. And that's a good sign that we're sensitive. We're seeing things more clearly. Uh, You know, we're getting more sensitive and, you know, we get irritated by things. And, you know, there's two ways, there's probably more than two ways, but two ways that I've seen. We can either, I could have either said, oh my gosh, that teacher, I'm going to the office right now and I'm going to write a report and I'm going to, you know, I am going to make sure that she never gives that Dharma talk again, which would have been, you know, probably an okay thing. It might have, you know, in the time that I want, you know, I was thinking about doing that, it was watering the seeds of my... um, anger and aversion so it probably would have been good to wait but actually that didn't even come up for me after six weeks I didn't even think about you know what I should do to her you know calling out culture I think they call it now (laughs) I didn't want to do that at all it was all about I actually went into a panic attack and through this panic attack I started seeing much more clearly 
Uh, and this lasted maybe three or four days, but I saw more clearly than I had ever seen in my whole life this whole victim identity that I had. And I knew exactly where it came from, you know, years of historical trauma, generations of it, of, no, you know, I don't have any agency. I've got to keep my mouth shut and fit in as best as I can and, you know, just do what everybody else is doing so I'm not, you know, the person that Columbus comes over here and shoots and enslaves and steals their land, right? So uh, so I wasn't getting into the story, but I was seeing it. And there's multiple dimensions of um, seeing uh, the what it is, or seeing the view. Um, there's an energetic hit to it. It's not just uh, thoughts and emotions. There's an energetic hit to it. And, you know, for, from days of seeing this, it was self-pity. That's what it was. I just had this predominant self-pity that actually was over uh, my, percep my perception of anything in life. And it really reduced the sense of the agency that I had in the world or how much self, you know, how much I can change or how much power I had. And it had been there my entire life and I hadn't seen it before. And to me, I was overjoyed. It's like, oh my God. You know, I felt the energetic hit of it. There was an energetic vibe. I felt the unconscious emotional sense of it. I felt the uh, thought patterns that it gave rise to. And I was able to see them very, very clearly. And after a couple of days, I was able to put a pretty good frame around it. And when it arose, I was able to say, oh, I see you self-pity. You know, just like the Buddha said right before he got enlightened, I see you, Mara. You know, you see these a habitual state and you decondition it that way. And it had a huge impact on my life. That was one of the biggest insights I had of, you know, letting go of being a victim and realizing that all of the craziness that other people do that makes us suffer, that's their karma. You know, that's their karma. And thinking about, and not that we don't do social justice work. I mean, I do that for a living. I work in social work and public health. That's what we do. So it's not that we don't do social justice work, but, you know, for us personally, we don't have to, um, you know, when the Buddha, whatever economic system they had then, he was going, I'm not getting played by this economic system. He set up a monastic community that had, uh, I think, four requisites. It was food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. That's a good thing to remember. Medicine was a requisite. <laughs> it should be a requisite now. In most countries, it's a requisite now. So, and he, you know, he and his community were the happiest people around. So for us to be played by all of the accumulation, you know, the um, ideas about how accumulation is going to make us happy or looking a certain way is going to make us happy or having this or being that is going to make us happy, you know. Uh, re seeing the truth that that is absolutely just a way to exploit us, isn't it? It's a way to... Um, to um, water our intentions of things that are not going to make us happy part of the story of our broader our broader culture and he was the happiest guy and you know he and all the monks and um they didn't have anything they couldn't 
uh, have anything of worth, you know, they would so-called beg for their food every day. And they were the happiest people. So that's the um, third way to change the view of realizing that um, we can look more deeply and uh, not be, you know, get at some insight about what really is the source of our own happiness and well-being. And that's something that we all have to to realize. I mean, that's one of the biggest realizations, too, of the practice is if we have to have external conditions be a certain way for our own well-being, we're pretty much screwed. I mean, look what's happening right now. And it's the source of a lot of uh, suffering for people. A lot of suffering. And... You know, how do we hold that all of the craziness in a good way is to make a commitment to making sure that uh, people aren't abused and kids don't die and immigration camps on the border and that people have the resources that they need, but also to realize that uh, we can have a well-being and uh, sense of peace within us that isn't dependent on those things. And that's, you know, when we can do our best good for ourselves and for everyone is when we can rest in that sense of well-being and peace. I mean, that's probably the greatest thing we offer anyone is to be present with them with that, with that sense. So what else do I want to say about how mindfulness transforms suffering? So um, one other root idea in our Buddhist um, way of knowing is that if we're, and about mindfulness specifically, I think mindfulness is a spectrum. At one end of mindfulness, it's us just uh, perceiving what's happening, like, oh, thinking is happening, I'm having this sensation in my body, Or, you know, we kind of drift off and get caught in a thought and then come back to the body, come back to our anchor and get a little um, more uh, stability of mind to see, just watching what's happening with this heart and mind and body. And then on the other end of mindfulness, the strongest, most powerful wisdom principle arises. And that's when we are seeing everything. We are seeing the three characteristics or... You know, reality, we are seeing that in everything that arises. And we know those, the, those uh, three things are, I like to say it like this because I actually have it as a mantra for myself. Everything is imperfect. Everything is impersonal. And everything is impersonal. Right? Those are the three characteristics, which are anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Everything, uh, all conditioned things will never bring us the ultimate satisfaction we're looking for. So everything is imperfect. So our relationship, oh, I wish my partner was like that. Yeah, and guess what? The relationship is imperfect. That's the nature of it, right? And, you know, I don't want to let... My craving turned me into a mean person wanting this. If my partner doesn't do this or that, that's his problem. 
you know, I don't need to make it my problem to water the seeds of my desire and anger and resentment. And then um, the second one is impermanence, right? Things are changing all the time. Boy, as we age, that's a wonderful realization that as we age, things are changing much more quickly. Aging and changing are really go together really well. So everything is impermanent. I'm wondering, well, why isn't my work situation the way it was last year? Because it was impermanent. It couldn't be the same. It was never as solid and the same as you thought it was. You just weren't looking close enough. So when things change and we react to it, you know, the reflection, of course it changed. It's impermanent. That's anicca. And then impersonal. That's my favorite one. You know, all of the suffering that we have, it's as if we invented, you know, loss and grief and desire and um, all of these things. And of course we didn't. You know, my analogy to that is um, an aspen grove. So we have all these different aspen trees, right? And uh, it would be like one tree is one corner saying, why am I not as tall as that tree over there? That tree has so many more branches and its leaves are prettier, they're greener, and people are always going to that and wanting to sit under that tree. Why don't they want to sit under me? And um, as if, you know, that was one uh, individual tree, but in, in the aspen grove, we know that when you look underneath an aspen grove, there's only one root. You know, those are all expressions of the same root. And that's what we are. We are all individual expressions of the same awareness. And that's what the third one is. It's all impersonal. You know, this is the expression of me right now because of causes and conditions, because of history and past lives. I don't like to go there, but... You know, multiple causes and conditions. This is me right now. And I can look on that with some awareness and kindness, know whether it's wholesome, water the seeds of that. You know, the aspen tree would say, hey, I'm pretty cool. Look at these leaves. These leaves are beautiful. Why am I getting so upset? You know, turn it around and not let those habitual... And, you know, our, our culture, our economic system, that's how it sells us stuff by telling us that we need this and we're not good enough. We hear it constantly. You know, it's not just inside us. It's part of the culture that we live in. So some final words on a right attitude to have while we are letting our incredibly wonderful mindfulness deal with our suffering in these ways to try to cultivate an attitude of non-judgment. So for me, when I've got good samadhi and I see things arise, um, I'll see you know desire arise or a romantic fantasy will arise. And it was so common in me that I just called it RF, romantic fantasy. Oh, I see you, RF. And you can do that too if you see. Usually on longer retreats, you can see what are the things. You can see really what those, where those neuropathways are taking us. Um, But right after you see that, every time I see something like that in myself, the next thing I know is going to happen is I flinch. It's like, oh, Bonnie. But then the flinch is the next thing that I see. 
And then I give myself a little love. Yeah, like, of course you have that. Where do you live? You know, and just being kind to yourself right now. I can see my suffering and may I be free from suffering. But to see that flinch and then to follow it with, you know, some wholesome holding of things. So not try not to be judgmental, to be as patient as we can and to water the seeds of patience. When you see patience in, you say, oh, patience, I see you. Excellent. See what patience looks like. With a beginner's mind, this really helps us get to that intuitive awareness. What is this? And tell our thinking mind, I love you thinking mind. You are so wonderful, but not now. On Wednesday afternoon, we're going to hang out. Uh, With a beginner's mind, and trust yourself, non-doing. I think one of the ways that one of the teachers, who is it? I think it's Utejania, is that one of the things to look at is who is the doer? And that's where we see all these different identities. Who is the doer of this and who is the doer of that? All of these different becomings, you know, we can see more clearly. And acceptance, you know, accept that we are the aspen tree kind of bitching about itself. Yeah, you've got those qualities. I see it, but I love you anyway. And letting go and detachment. So I'll end with this last quote. Effort versus success. Effort and success. Effort is more important than so-called success because effort is a real thing. What we call success is just the manifestations of our mind's ability to categorize things. This is success. This is failure. Who says? You says. That's all. Reality is what it is beyond all concepts of success and failure. So, effort, perseverance, confidence. Let's sit for a minute. I'll be and see with clarity the imperfect, impermanent, and impersonal nature of reality. May we all be happy. May we all be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.